0: Chapter One Part Two Autobiography This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gary Gilbert. Autobiography by John Stuart Mill. Chapter One Part Two Childhood and Early Education. During this time the Latin and Greek books which I continued to read with my father, were chiefly such as were worth studying, not for the language merely, but also for the thoughts. This included much of the Orators, and especially Demosthenes, some of whose principal orations I read several times over, and wrote out, by way of exercise, a full analysis of them. My father's comments on these orations when i read them to him were very instructive to me he not only drew my attention to the insight they afforded into athenian institutions and the principles of legislation and government which they often illustrated but pointed out the skill and art of the orator how everything important to his purpose was said at the exact moment when he had brought the minds of his audience into the state most fitted to receive it how he made steel into their minds gradually and by insinuation thoughts which if expressed in a more direct manner would have roused their opposition most of these reflections were beyond my capacity of full comprehension at the time but they left seed behind which germinated in due season at this time i also read the whole of tacitus Juvenal, and Quintilian. The latter, owing to his obscure style, and to the scholastic details of which many parts of his treatise are made up, is little read, and seldom sufficiently appreciated. His book is a kind of encyclopaedia of the thoughts of the ancients on the whole field of education and culture, and I have retained through life many valuable ideas which I can distinctly trace to my reading of him, even at that early age. It was at this period that I read, for the first time, some of the most important dialogues of Plato, in particular the Gorgias, the Protagoras, and the Republic. There is no author to whom my father thought himself more indebted for his own mental culture than Plato, or whom he more frequently recommended to young students. I can bear similar testimony in regard to myself. The Socratic method, of which the Platonic dialogues are the chief example, is unsurpassed as a discipline for correcting the errors and clearing up the confusions incident to the intellectus sibi permissimus, the understanding which has made up all the bundles of associations under the guidance of popular phraseology. The close-searching elenchusis, by which the man of vague generalities is constrained either to express his meaning to himself in definite terms or to confess that he does not know what he is talking about the perpetual testing of all general statements by particular instances the siege in form which is laid to the meaning of large abstract terms by fixing upon some still larger class name which includes that and more and dividing down to the thing sought Marked out its limits and definition by a series of accurately drawn distinctions between it and each of the cognate objects which are successively parted off from it. All this, as an education for precise thinking, is inestimable. And all this, even at that age, took such hold of me that it became part of my own mind. I have felt ever since that the title of Platonist belongs by far better right to those who have been nourished in and have endeavoured to practice Plato's mode of investigation, than to those who are distinguished only by the adoption of certain dogmatical conclusions, drawn mostly from the least intelligible of his works, and which the character of his mind and writings makes it uncertain whether he himself regarded as anything more than poetic fancies, or philosophic, conjectures. In going through Plato and Demosthenes, since I could now read these authors, as far as the language was concerned, with perfect ease, I was not required to construe them sentence by sentence, but to read them aloud to my father, answering questions when he asked. But the particular attention which he paid to elocution, in which his own excellence, was remarkable made this reading aloud to him a most painful task. Of all things which he required me to do, there was none which I did so consistently ill, or in which he so perpetually lost his temper with me. He had thought much on the principles of the art of reading, especially the most neglected part of it, the inflections of the voice, or modulation, as writers on elocution call it, in contrast with Articulation on the one side and expression on the other, and had reduced it to rules, grounded on the logical analysis of a sentence. These rules he strongly impressed upon me, and took me severely to task for every violation of them. But I even then remarked, though I did not venture to make the remark to him, that though he reproached me when I read something ill, and told me how I ought to have read it, he never by reading it himself showed me how it ought to be read a defect running through his otherwise admirable modes of instruction as it did through all his modes of thought was that of trusting too much to the intelligibleness of the abstract when not embodied in the concrete it was at a much later period of my youth when practising elocution by myself or with companions of my own age that I for the first time understood the object of these rules, and saw the psychological grounds of them. At that time I and others followed out the subject into its ramifications, and could have composed a very useful treatise, grounded on my father's principles. He himself left those principles and rules unwritten. I regret that when my mind was full of the subject, from systematic practice, I did not put them and our improvements of them, into a formal shape. A book which contributed largely to my education, in the best sense of the term, was my father's History of India. It was published in the beginning of 1818. During the year previous, while it was passing through the press, I used to read the proof-sheets to him, or rather I read the manuscripts to him, while he corrected the proofs the number of new ideas which i received from this remarkable book and the impulse and stimulus as well as guidance given to my thoughts by its criticism and disquisitions on society and civilization in the hindu part or the institutions and the acts of government in the english part made my early familiarity with it eminently useful to my subsequent progress and though I can perceive deficiencies in it now as compared with a perfect standard, I still think it, if not the most, one of the most, instructive histories ever written, and one of the books from which most benefit may be derived by a mind in the course of making up its opinions. The preface among the most characteristic of my father's writings, as well as the richness in materials of thought, gives a picture which may be entirely depended on, of the sentiments and expectations with which he wrote the history, saturated as the book is with the opinions and modes of judgment of a democratic radicalism then regarded as extreme, and, treating with a severity, at that time most unusual, the English Constitution, the English law, and all parties and classes who possessed any considerable influence in the country he may have expected reputation, but certainly not advancement in life, from its publication, nor could he have supposed that it would raise up anything but enemies for him in powerful quarters. Least of all could he have expected favor from the East India Company, to whose commercial privileges he was unqualifiedly hostile, and on the acts of whose government he had made so many severe comments though in various parts of his book he bore a testimony to their favour, which he felt to be their just due, namely, that no government had, on the whole, given so much proof to the extent of its lights, of good intention toward its subjects, and that, if the acts of any other government had the light of publicity as completely let in upon them, they would, in all probability, still less bare scrutiny. On learning, however, in the spring of 1819, about a year after the publication of the history, that the East India directors desired to strengthen the part of their home establishment which was employed in carrying out the correspondence with India, my father declared himself a candidate for that employment, and, to the credit of the directors, successfully. He was appointed one of the assistants of the examiner of India correspondence, officers whose duty it was to prepare drafts of dispatches to India for consideration by the directors in the principal departments of administration. In this office and in that of examiner, which he subsequently attained, the influence which his talents, his reputation, and his decisions of character gave him, with superiors who readily desired the good government of India, enabled him, to a great extent, to throw into his drafts of dispatches, and to carry through the ordeal of the Court of Directors and Board of Control, without having their force much weakened his real opinions on Indian subjects. In his history he had set forth, for the first time, many of the true principles of Indian administration and his dispatches, following his history, did more than had ever been done before to promote the improvement of India, and teach Indian officials to understand their business. If a selection of them were published, they would, I am convinced, place his character as a practical statesman fully on a level with his eminence as a speculative writer. This new employment of his time caused no relaxation. In his attention to my education. It was in this same year, eighteen nineteen, that he took me through a complete course of political economy. His loved and intimate friend Ricardo had shortly before published the book which formed so great an epoch in political economy, a book which would never have been published or written but for the entreaty and strong encouragement of my father. For Ricardo, the most modest of men, though firmly convinced of the truth of his doctrines, deemed himself so little capable of doing them justice, in exposition and expression, that he shrank from the idea of publicity. The same friendly encouragement induced Ricardo, a year or two later, to become a member of the House of Commons, where, during the remaining years of his life, unhappily cut short in the full vigor of his intellect, he rendered so much service to his and my father's opinions both on political economy and on other subjects though ricardo's great work was already in print no didactic treatise embodying its doctrine in a manner fit for learners had yet appeared my father therefore commenced instructing me in the science by a sort of lectures which he delivered to me in our walks He expounded each day a portion of the subject, and I gave him next day a written account of it, which he made me rewrite over and over again until it was clear, precise, and tolerably complete. In this manner I went through the whole extent of the science, and the written outline of it, which resulted from my daily compta rendue, served him afterwards as notes from which to write his Elements of Political Economy. After this I read Ricardo, giving my account daily of what I read, and discussing, in the best manner I could, the collateral points which offered themselves in our progress. On money, as the most intricate part of the subject, he made me read in all the same manner Ricardo's admirable pamphlets, written during what was called the Bullion Controversy. To these succeeded Adam Smith, and— In this reading it was one of my father's main objects to make me apply to Smith's more superficial view of political economy the superior lights of Ricardo and detect what was fallacious in Smith's arguments or erroneous in any of his conclusions. Such a mode of instruction was exceedingly calculated to form a thinker, but it required to be worked by a thinker as close and vigorous as my father. The path was a thorny one, even to him, and I am sure it was so to me. Notwithstanding the strong interest I took in the subject, he was often, and much beyond reason, provoked by my failure in cases where success could not have been expected. But in the main his method was right, and it succeeded. I do not believe that any scientific teaching ever was more thorough, or better fitted for training the facilities than the mode in which logic and political economy were taught to me by my father. Striving even in an exaggerated degree everything for myself, he gave his explanations not before, but after I had felt the full force of the difficulties, and not only gave me an accurate knowledge of these two great subjects, as far as they were then understood, but made me a thinker on both. I thought for myself almost from the first and occasionally thought differently from him though for a long time only on minor points in making his opinion the ultimate standard at a later period i even occasionally convinced him and altered his opinion on some points of detail which i state to his honour not to my own it at once exemplified his perfect candour and the real worth of his method of teaching at this point concluded what can properly be called my lessons When I was about fourteen I left England, and for more than a year, and after my return, though my studies went on under my father's general direction, he was no longer my schoolmaster. I shall therefore pause here and turn back to matters of a more general nature, connected with the part of my life and education included in the preceding reminiscences. In the course of instruction, which I have partly retracted, the point most superficially apparent is the great effort to give during the years of childhood an amount of knowledge in what are considered the highest branches of education which is seldom acquired if acquired at all until the age of manhood the result of this experiment shows the ease with which this may be done and places in a strong light the wretched waste of so many precious years we are spent in acquiring the modicum of latin and greek commonly taught to schoolboys a waste which has led so many educational reformers to entertain the ill-judged proposal of discarding these languages altogether from general education if i had been by nature extremely quick of apprehension or had possessed a very accurate and retentive memory or were of a remarkably active and energetic character the trial would not be conclusive but in all these natural gifts i am rather below than above par what i could do could assuredly be done by any boy or girl of average capacity and healthy physical constitution and if i have accomplished anything i owe it among other fortunate circumstances to the fact that through the early training bestowed upon me by my father i started i may fairly say with an advantage of a quarter of a century over my contemporaries. There was one cardinal point in this training of which I have already given some indication, and which, more than anything else, was the cause of whatever good it affected. Most boys or youths who have had much knowledge drilled into them have their mental capacities not strengthened but overlaid by it. They are crammed with mere facts, and with the opinions or phrases of other people and these are accepted as a substitute for the power to form opinions of their own and thus the sons of eminent fathers who have spared no pains in their education so often grow up mere parroters of what they have learnt incapable of using their minds except in the furrows traced for them mine however was not an education of cram my father never permitted anything which i learnt to degenerate into a mere exercise of memory He strove to make the understanding not only go along with every step of the teaching, but if possible precede it. Anything which could be found out by thinking, I never was told, until I had exhausted my efforts to find it out for myself. As far as I can trust my remembrance, I acquitted myself very lamely in this department. My recollection of such matters is almost wholly of failures, hardly ever of success it is true that the failures were often in things in which success in so early a stage of my progress was almost impossible i remember at some time in my thirteenth year on my happening to use the word idea he asked me what an idea was and expressed some displeasure at my ineffectual efforts to define the word I recollect also his indignation at my using the common expression that sometimes was true in theory, but required correction in practice, and how, after making me vainly strive to define the word theory, he explained its meaning and showed the fallacy of the vulgar form of speech which I had used, leaving me fully persuaded that in being unable to give a correct definition of theory, and in speaking of it as something which might be at variance with practice i had shown unparalleled ignorance in this he seems and perhaps was very unreasonable but i think only in being angry at my failure a pupil from whom nothing is ever demanded which he cannot do never does all he can one of the evils most liable to attend to any sort of early proficiency and which often fatally blights its promise my father most anxiously guarded against this was self-conceit he kept me with extreme vigilance out of the way of hearing myself praised or of being led to make self-flattering comparisons between myself and others from his own intercourse with me i could derive none but a very humble opinion of myself the standard of comparison he always held up to me was not what other people did but what a man could and ought to do he completely succeeded in preserving me from the sort of influences he so much dreaded i was not at all aware that my attainments were anything unusual at my age if i accidentally had my attention drawn to the fact that some other boy knew less than myself which happened less often than might be imagined i concluded not that i knew much but that he for some reason or other knew little or that his knowledge was of a different kind from mine. My state of mind was not humility, but neither was it arrogance. I never thought of saying to myself, I am, or I can do, so and so. I neither estimated myself highly nor lowly. I did not estimate myself at all. If I thought anything about myself, it was that I was rather backward in my studies, since I always found myself so in comparison with what my father expected of me. I assert this with confidence, though it was not the impression of various persons who saw me in my childhood. They, as I have since found, thought me greatly and disagreeably self-conceited, probably because I was disputatious, and did not scruple to give direct contradictions to things which I heard said. I suppose I acquired this bad habit From having been encouraged in an unusual degree to talk on matters beyond my age, and with grown persons, while I never had inculcated on me the usual respect for them, my father did not correct this ill breeding and impertinence, probably from not being aware of it, for I was always too much in awe of him to be otherwise than extremely subdued and quiet in his presence. Yet with all this, I had no notion of any superiority in myself, and well as it for me that I had not. I remember the very place in Hyde Park where, in my fourteenth year, on the eve of leaving my father's house for a long absence, he told me that I should find, as I got acquainted with new people, that I had been taught many things which youths of my age did not commonly know, and that many persons would be disposed to talk to me of this, and to compliment me on it what other things he said on this topic i remember very imperfectly but he wound up by saying that whatever i knew more than others could not be ascribed to any merit in me but to the very unusual advantage which had fallen to my lot of having a father who was able to teach me and willing to give me the necessary trouble and time that it was no matter of praise to me if i knew more than those who had not had a similar advantage but the deepest disgrace to me if I did not. I have a distinct remembrance that the suggestion thus for the first time made to me that I knew more than other youths who were considered well educated was to me a piece of information to which, as to all other things which my father told me, I gave implicit credence, but which did not at all impress me as a personal matter. I felt no disposition to glorify myself upon the circumstance that there were other persons who did not know what i knew nor had i ever flattered myself that my acquirements whatever they might be were any merit of mine but now when my attention was called to the subject i felt that what my father had said respecting my peculiar advantage was exactly the truth and common sense of the matter and it fixed my opinion and feeling from that time Forward End of Chapter one Childhood and Early Education Part two Recording by Gary Gilbert Wheaton, Illinois